0: everyone, I'm Chris Hadley and welcome once again to the Viewfinder podcast. Over the past few years on this show, I've been honored to chat with very talented actors, writers, and filmmakers who play their respective trades in the cinematic world. Yet, as you'll hear on today's show, there are other brilliant artists doing amazing work outside the world of the moving image. One of them is author and playwright Diana Morrison whose dramatic literary presentation of her as yet unproduced stage play, Justice, places America's founding fathers, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and George Washington, as distant yet passionate observers in the courtroom of its fictional protagonist, present-day Judge Grace Porter, as she tries two highly politicized cases involving the right to free speech. The first involves the mass protests that took place during the inaugural ceremonies for former President Trump, while the other depicted in this play is loosely based on the prosecution that followed the tragic Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in August of 2017, which resulted in the deaths of civil rights activist Heather Heyer and two Virginia State Police troopers. Justice is the first in a trilogy of stories involving Judge Porter, with the second, titled Liberty putting on trial another cherished, yet constantly challenged American right, the right to bear arms. Diana will join us to talk about that book on next week's podcast. Both Justice and Liberty are available in paperback and digital on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and in other stores, with the final part of the trilogy in the pre-planning stages. I'm honored to welcome Diana Morrison to talk about her work on Justice, a project that started over 20 years ago and would have already been a produced stage play were it not for the onset of COVID in 2020. However, she still hopes that this important work will eventually be performed before audiences in the future. For now though, let's hear from Diana about what it took for her to create this first entry in this powerful and highly relevant series of books. First of all, Diana, Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on to talk about all of this.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to our conversation.
0: Justice is the first in a trilogy that features modern dramatizations of some of the most high-profile constitutional cases in recent American history, as seen from the current perspectives of a present-day adjudicator and the observations from some of America's founding fathers. This is a project you began way back in 2001, shortly after the controversial election of President George W. Bush was decided by the Supreme Court following the Florida Week Out. Did that influence the project in any way where you started, or was this a play that you believe would place America's societal struggles in a greater historical context, specifically going back to the brutality of slavery?
1: Um, I can say it had absolutely nothing to do with um, the Supreme Court decision, and, and W. It had nothing to do with, with that. Um, And and yes, so, you know, certainly um, I do discuss my interpretation of what I believe our framers um, viewpoints were on slavery. And I think that it was important to include, so I did.
0: Justice revolves around two of the most publicized and politicized criminal cases that took place during the Trump administration, where the differences in both the political views and actions of the defendants were being prosecuted as much as they were themselves. In what ways did seeing both the media coverage of those trials, the ways that the government and the criminal justice system approach the two cases, and the overall reactions to them by the public, including your own, prompt you to conceive the story and characters in Justice?
1: The two courtroom cases highlighted in Justice do such a great job of shining a light on the hypocrisies of the current legal system and what some prosecutors and the Dep- Department of Justice got away with. Um, The first case focuses on the true-to-life J20 trials resulting from the over 200 mostly peaceful protesters being arrested on the inauguration day of Donald Trump on January 20th, 2017. These charges should have never been allowed to be filed, let alone move forward to trial for the first six defendants. So I was outraged when I read about this case. And it was the catalyst for me to actually do the major rewrite of my script back in 2017 and 2018. Um, If you were aware of these arrests in this case, you could follow it in the news, but it really was not as publicized as it should have been given the egregious nature of these outlandish arrests. And I'm still surprised that many Americans still don't seem to be aware of these arrests and the trial. Um, you know, believe me, I think if the Department of Justice had been successful, um, it would have been all over Fox News 24-7, um, but, but they weren't successful. Um, so I think there, there really was a, a limited reaction from the public that I'm aware of. But with that being said, I still think that the American public deserves to be informed of what our government under the previous administration was allowed to do. Yeah, the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally did receive much more media attention, and rightly so. But at least initially, I don't believe that the Department of Justice or the prosecutors attached, treated Charlottesville with the severity required. So I did injustice when I upped the charges to criminal. And we can talk about that a little bit later on in one of your other questions.
0: We see these cases tried in the courtroom of your fictional protagonist, Judge Grace Porter, discuss how that character and the philosophical conflict she experiences both inside and outside of the courtroom help us to understand what goes through a judge's mind when trying such politically charged cases like these.
1: Without giving away too much, um, at the start of the play, she has gifted a book, which is basically a a refresher course on the framing of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. She is a newly seated judge. She's already had one of her rulings appealed and her father was a Supreme Court justice. So she's feeling immense pressure, not just self-inflicted but from her peers, from the media and from the communities where these trials are being held. So there's this push pull struggle of what she as a human being feels is just and right but that has to be independent and compartmentalized in contrast to what the jury's verdict is going to turn out to be. So she's she's riddled with self-doubt and it takes a toll on her and her personal relationships.
0: We see that push-pull struggle, of course, with the relationship she shares with her boyfriend, Mitch, and sister, Gabrielle. They are both very important parts of her life as people will read in the play. Describe how that aspect of her character gives her not just a sense of relatability to readers, but also the ways that it motivates her in her professional day-to-day life.
1: Sure. I, I mean, I guess ultimately when she takes off the judge's robe at the end of the day, she's a human being just like we all are with good days and bad days and with complicated family and love relationships. With all that being said, she's a perfectionist, and an extreme type A personality who feels like whatever she does is probably not good enough. And she's struggling to try to get some sense of balance in her life. Like the rest of us at times, she's struggling with self-doubt and insecurities. And so she tries to hide behind a wall, a tough facade. However, I think we're given a glimpse of those rare moments when she lets her guard down. We are given full view of her humanity and her passion and compassion in her Charlottesville sentencing.
0: Before you wrote this play, you spent 20 years researching the original writings and opinions of the founding fathers who we see portrayed in justice, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and George Washington. What were some of the biggest lessons and notable facts you came upon during your research and what were the main challenges you encounter when trying to create dramatized versions of those figures?
1: Well, I could I could go on with about this question for a really long time, but I'm I, and I'll so I'll try to make it brief. But um, I guess because I was neither a history major or a historian, I learned a lot that is probably old news uh, to those that are. Um, You know, Washington, Hamilton, Madison, Franklin, Adams, Jefferson, I I guess we all know that many of them didn't get along, but some of them really didn't like each other. Um, You know, we had just realized victory over the British in the Revolutionary War, and there was really no reason that we should have won that war. Uh, We were outnumbered, we were out-resourced in every way. So. Whether you have decided to love them or hate them, they were patriots who then went on to frame a model of government that had no replica in world history. Um, so some, some fun facts, I guess, George Washington, who was revered as the father of our country, um, he was tenacious when faced with adversity and he was a commanding presence. Uh, at six foot two, he towered over the room and he was a larger than life presence he never attended college or had any type of formal education. Um, Contrary to popular folklore, he never had wooden teeth, (laughs) but he did suffer with many different sets of painful dentures. Um, And there's also still no actual evidence that uh, he said, I cannot tell a lie uh, when he chopped down his father's cherry tree. I don't know that, that, I think that's a bit of folklore. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of myth around the man. Um, but after 40 years of service to his country, he became our, our first president and resided for two terms. And um, I think it's a lesser known fact that in some circles, Washington as our president, even during our country's infancy, faced immense scrutiny by the press. He was accused of adopting a, monarch, a monarchical style. And in his second term, he was even attacked on his integrity, and even his military reputation. So it was kind of the start of a true free press, which all of our founders fought for, but could be difficult to maneuver when you were its target. Benjamin Franklin Beish, who was Benjamin Franklin's grandson, was actually one of Washington's staunchest critics. So Washington was more than ready to walk away and retire from the public stage in 1797. So I I think that's kind of interesting. Um, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, they had a love-hate relationship. Um, And I think everybody knows that they died within five hours of each other, at the 50 year anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th of 1826. So I, I think that's probably well known, but I always find it worth repeating. I think it's pretty interesting. Um, and I also think that a lot of Americans don't realize just how many contributions Benjamin Franklin made to our young country. In um, at four scene three, one of the final flashback scenes, I have what I think is one of the most moving flashback scenes between Washington and Franklin. And they were ardent admirers of one another. Um, Franklin lived his life by a set of 13 virtues, and he kept track of himself every day. And every night in a journal, he would sit down and kind of make note of how he did for the day. And he would rate himself on his failures and successes. And one of the virtues he most ardently struggled with was chastity. He liked women and courted numerous mistresses while commissioned in both England and France. As he grew older, he especially liked younger women, though they mostly rejected his advances. And he cheated openly on Deborah Reed, his wife of 44 years, and 18 of those years were spent living apart. Um, I was actually just in a bookstore yesterday and I stumbled upon a brandly new published book named, named Poor Richard's Women, Deborah Reed Franklin and the Other Women Behind the Founding Father. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, so those are just some interesting and fun facts that I've always kept with me that I didn't know.
0: I didn't know them either until you just told me.
1: <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot there to digest.
0: Thank you for sharing. I really appreciate that. How did that research... Your usage of the founders' most important speeches on civil rights, such as freedom of speech and the right to a trial by jury, and the importance of both of those to our democracy, plus what you discovered about the founders, informed both the way you dramatized those real life figures and how you imagined they would have re- reacted to both the story's judge protagonist and the two historic cases we see her preside over in justice.
1: I definitely feel that the message of justice is more timely now than when I was publishing it back in 2020 and 2021. I think justice sends a message of hope, and it's a timely reminder of what is at the roots of our democracy when I think our country desperately needs to hear this message. If we could focus on the things that unite us as Americans versus the things that divide and tear us apart, we'd be in better shape our politicians have forgotten about the art of negotiation and ultimately compromise. Our original statement, statesmen, our framers, were poster boys for the art of theatrical debate, followed by negotiation and compromise. You know, I think 240 years later, as Americans, we don't know any other form of government except democracy. And I think that the current state of democracy, even when it includes all of its dysfunctionality, is well worth fighting for. Indeed, I think, I think that if a larger percentage of Americans actually believed that their democracy, that their freedom was at stake, because it is, we could actually join forces and bring about some positive change. Um, and, and as far as, how my research kind of aided the dramatization. You know, I think the founding fathers, I think their lives and their circumstances lent themselves to creativity and dramatization. So I had no problem with that at all. It was actually a lot of fun.
0: And going back to the earlier point you said about our democracy and the state it's in, it's been fragile since the day that this country was founded. And it's something that we cannot take for granted, especially now. And as long as we keep fighting for it, then I think we've got a chance to keep it.
1: Well, I agree with you, you know, but I think we, we have to keep fighting for it. Right. Um, you know, it's not a given. And, you know, as I said, we know no other form of government but democracy.
0: Since justice focuses on the broader First Amendment ramifications of these cases and the differences in how the government approached both Talk about how readers can understand the ways that the first amendment is both used and abused through these cases, as well as how imagining how the founding fathers would have reacted to the proceedings portrayed in this play can educate readers on the responsibilities of our rights and the dangers when they are abused.
1: So the charges brought against the defendants in the J20 trials for all, but about 10% of them um, were a gross abuse of the rights protected by the First Amendment. Um, I I mean, the Department of Justice flat out admitted that at the beginning of the trial, they had no proof, no evidence, and yet the trial was permitted to go on. Um, And just to name a couple of articles that I had included in my research, I uh, I dug them out just because I wanted to to get the dates. Um, But a couple were, there was a December 21st, 2017 article by the Huffington Post, and a November 6, 2017 article by USA Today. And the Justice Department prosecutors representing the US government conceded at the beginning of the trial that there was no evidence any of the six defendants engaged in any property destruction or violence on January 20th, but they alleged that the six defendants engaged in part of a rioting conspiracy and should be held responsible for more than $100,000 Worth the property damage sustained that day, so they were going for a guilt by association angle. Except in a few instances, the indictment attributed violence broadly, often blaming specific acts of destruction on the group at large. So you know, as as further supported by uh, January 18, 2018, article um, at the first trial, prosecutors con- conceded that there was no evidence. Instead. They tried to explain the protesters were complicit in the violence because they did not remove themselves from the disturbance But a jury found all being tried, not guilty on all counts. So this case raises major first amendment issues. Individuals that were actually proven to have taken part in the looting, the rioting, the burning, et cetera, were tried and charged and sentenced accordingly. In the Charlottesville trial, the attorney for the defense repeatedly tries to claim First Amendment protections to justify the hate-filled, violence-inducing, written and spoken words and dogma leading up to and during the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally that led to murder, bloodshed, and mayhem. Hate words are not protected by the First Amendment. And that was just one of many for instances in that case.
0: In preparing the dramatizations for both trials, what was your research process like? And did you find transcripts of the testimony and arguments and subsequently place Judge Porter in those instances? Or was everything entirely dramatized based on the information that was already available to you?
1: Well, for the J-20 trials, I just kept up on the actual trial proceedings and verdicts rendered. And then I just plugged... Judge Grace into presiding over that case. I mean, let's face it, the previous administration
0: gave me a lot
1: of low-hanging fruit to work with. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the Charlottesville trial though, that was a bit of a different scenario. Um, So I read the 96 page civil case that had been filed in its entirety against the white supremacists. And then I heightened the charges to criminal and increase the number of innocent protesters that lost their lives, virtually the actual civil case that was pending at the time because it didn't seem that unrealistic based on the preponderance of actual documented evidence surrounding the violence, injuries and death that resulted. As of July, 2018, the Justice Department allowed other lawsuits to move forward charging dozens of white supremacists with the intention of committing violence. So the trial proceedings as anticipated and written in justice, correctly anticipated these charges months in advance of the actual filings.
0: You also made sure to examine differing political viewpoints in justice while also considering the many ways that language itself can easily incite people to commit heinous crimes especially as we've seen with the January 6 trials and the Charlottesville trial that's portrayed injustice. What were some of the most challenging parts of taking these different viewpoints into consideration and how did you try to give them both a fair representation in this play?
1: Well, I mean, as the writer, you know, I think it's important to be fair and in incorporating differing viewpoints, even when they're diametrically opposed to your own, it was difficult to write the dialogue of the hate-filled words for the white supremacist witness at the Charlotte Charlottesville trial. It was really hard for me to write those words and put them on paper. Um, however, when those viewpoints are against the law and harm others, then it becomes a matter of law versus a matter of my opinion.
0: You mentioned in the Forward to Justice that as you were preparing the play version of this project, you reached out personally to Lin-Manuel Miranda, the co-star and creator of the Broadway hit Hamilton about your work on this project. And it gave you a great note of encouragement. Tell us more about that and about how justice is already making an impact in both the literary and academic worlds.
1: Yeah, so I did reach out to to Lin-Manuel and um, I had read an article somewhere online by his dad, and his dad said that he answers every single letter that he gets. So I'm like, well, one well, then why not me, right? <laughs> so I wrote him a, like I think it was probably a two-page letter, just introducing myself and my work, and I sent him probably it was probably about a 17-page excerpt from Justice that included one of the flashback scenes, and um, I actually um, I dug out I dug out the letter. <laughs> Here it is. And I was so excited. Here it is. And so, what he said was Diana, thank you kindly for your letter and for sharing your work with me. Although time constraints regrettably keep me from offering feedback, I encourage you to keep producing such important work. Here's wishing you continued success, both personal and professional.
0: It's wonderful. <laughs>
1: I was so excited.
0: Justice is the first of what is a planned trilogy of plays featuring both Judge Porter and the observations of the founders, with the second of those plays being Liberty. This one focusing on the equally hot button issue of the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. Are there any details you would like to share with us about that and on when and where people can expect to see it?
1: Liberty is about the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. uh, But... The different one of the differences between liberty and justice is that for liberty, I actually had to use a hypothetical trial. Um, I had to create more of a what if scenario, because nothing has been done to pass any meaningful gun control legislation in years. And you know, t- you know, think of the last time you heard of any meaningful trial that had anything to do. With violence or mass shootings, you you can't you can't name any because in the for instance of mass shootings, uh, the perpetrator frequently commits suicide, or if they don't, um, they're put in jail and then they claim insanity. So there there was nothing for me to actually use as an actual trial. So I made one up.
0: How far along are you in the third part of the trilogy?
1: It's in my head.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's in my head. It's been in my head as long as the first two. And well, I I just, uh, I I have to have fine time to write it. Uh,
0: well, whenever you finish, whenever it's ready, please let me know because I would love to have you back on to discuss it.
1: Absolutely. I, I'd love to share it with you. Um, you know, I know, I think you had asked me and I'm, don't know if I got to answer um, what, if any, any strides justice has made so far, Um, you know, and I've got to say, as far as um, I've entered it into a few contests, writing awards, and I was a finalist in the performing arts category in four different, uh, four different awards. So I was excited about that. And I actually have a couple of classrooms in the DC area that have incorporated justice into their classroom. That's
0: great. As an artist, a historian, and an observer of America's politics, past and present, how has creating justice impacted you? And what message do you hope to send readers and audiences with that and the following entries in the trilogy?
1: Well, I mean, and keep in mind, this is my perspective, okay? And I respect others who have a different perspective than I do. But in how it's impacted me, um, I have grown to have a, prop- a profound sense of admiration and respect for the ideology of democracy and the democratic form of government. Um, I, I still think that the democratic form of government is the best platform for a country's beliefs, a free countries, beliefs, uh, which includes, of course, the founding of the United States of America and the guys who wrote the stuff. Uh, You know, they were imperfect, aspirational idealists. Notice I didn't say inspirational. I said aspirational. Um, They were imperfect men who formed an imperfect union. And it's been every generation's responsibility since to improve upon it. So... That's what I think.
0: That's what the founding document says, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, not a perfect union, a more perfect union.
1: Exactly. That's the first sentence of the Constitution.
0: Finally, what are your hopes for both the success of justice and the impact that it will have on readers, especially those who these days, unfortunately, still take for granted the rights and freedoms that we enjoy in America and who must understand that they and we together must work every day to maintain those rights and freedoms in this country.
1: Yeah, and I agree with you in that. I, I mean, I think the good news right now, Chris, is that democracy seems to be trending. And, um, you know, we look at all of the terrible things that the people in Ukraine are going through and what they are doing to fight for their democracy. And, you know, I think it's because, you know, because they are where they are in the world. It's, it's so far removed from any of our minds that our democracy could be taken away from us. But I don't think, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of people don't understand that we were pretty close, um, that we were pretty close. And we have such freedoms that people in other countries of the world just dream of. And and that's why we always have so many people that are trying to come here and live um, because they live in such difficult situations and they can come to America and live the American dream if they work hard enough and they can, and they're right. So, um, you know, I guess, you know, in. When Grace does the sentencing for the Charlottesville trial, I think she does a really good job of pointing that out, that we live in the United States of America, that we have great freedoms that other people in other countries would do anything for. But I think the politicians, unfortunately, in our country right now have forgotten all about the art of compromise there is none there is none it's it's my way or the highway and it's difficult to get anything passed through congress and we can't continue that way forever
0: definitely not and far too many of them these days seem to care more about power than about the responsibility they have to their constituents
1: agreed yeah i mean that's absolutely true i mean they are voted into their positions by their constituents. Wow. And, you know, it just, it just seems like that has all been forgotten and there's really no working across the aisle um, or it's very minimal. And I think that, um, you know, something has to give.
0: That being said, with all the attacks these days on voting rights, and all the despair that seems to be going around, especially among people on the left. I try to remind myself that, you know, as you said, democracy does seem to be trending in this country these days. And there are more people who are fighting to save it every day than those who are trying to destroy it. And that's something that we all have to keep in mind.
1: I certainly hope so. Um, I honestly have great concerns about the upcoming elections. Um, I I hope that things end up differently than I think they might, because I think there could be some profound impact on us. And and so I hope that everybody gets out and votes. Um, That is the basis of a democratic society. It's the only way that we're going to make any type of meaningful change. And so whatever I can do to help people get out and vote, whether it's sending postcards to people in Georgia, again, which I spent hours doing, um, whatever it takes to get people out and to vote and, and you know to, to put up with, all, with the barriers that have been, that laid down for them over the last year and a half or so, um, if they will just persevere, so that they can cast their vote. I think that's really, really important.
0: Once again, I thank our guest, justice author and playwright Diana Morrison, for joining us on this week's Viewfinder podcast. Next week, we chat with her about the second part of her trilogy, the Second Amendment-based drama, Liberty. For now, that's our show. I'm Chris Hadley. Thanks for listening, and until next time, please stay safe, everyone.